This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Arminius says, no, it's because of the righteousness of Christ that God treats my faith as if it were itself righteousness. So there's a sense in which it's justification on faith, not justification by faith. Hello, I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you? I'm doing well. Looking forward to our our conversation about that great reformed question mark theologian Arminius, but uh, our our guest will illumine us. Yes, that is that is the question of the hour. We have a a guest who's a a friend of ours, and he's been on this program a number of times. Uh, he is the Harriet Barber Professor of Systematic and Historical Theology at RTS Jackson, and he's an ordained minister in the OPC author of many very helpful books, uh, Dr. J.V. Fesco. John, thanks for joining us today to talk about Arminius and the Reformed tradition. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. John, I think the, the, the million-dollar question is this. Is Arminius Reformed? Is he? Should we consider him part of the Reformed tradition? There are, there are authors out there who would say yes, and there are some who consider Arminius the very opposite of what it means to be Reformed. So where do you fall? Yeah, long story short, the book title kind of gives it away, at least uh, surreptitiously, is that I I would say that he's not a Reformed theologian. He has a number of doctrines that we would hold in common with him, but he really set forth a program, uh, a doctrinal program to, 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 to make a break from the Reformed tradition. And uh, despite contemporary historians, whether it was Carl Bangs uh, in the 20th century or others who have tried to position him as a reformed theologian, or perhaps even as a bridge uh, to the Arminian tradition, and that he's somewhat something of a halfway house, I, I think that that was not his intent and that he really wanted to, you know, to, to break away from the reformed tradition. So no, he's not. Thus, the title, Arminius and uh, the Reformed tradition. That's an important point that you made just there in that summary, that this isn't a case where he's someone who is trying consciously to operate within that tradition and maybe, you know, without knowing it, uh, makes a a misstep here or there. You're saying, no, his project, as it were, was was in uh, direct contrast in some ways with the Reformed tradition. Absolutely. Uh, you know, he received what we would call a, a stellar reformed education. He studied at Geneva, a number of other places. He had a, a number of reformed, well-known reformed luminaries as his uh, professors and or colleagues. And uh, one of the things that he was setting forth with some of his other uh, like-minded colleagues, colleagues was an effort to revise the, uh, the, the, the three forms of unity, uh, which at that point weren't necessarily completely the doctrinal standard. That wouldn't happen really, obviously, until the Synod of Dort and the creation of, uh, of the Canons of Dort, which would become the one of the, the pillars of the three forms of unity. But they were seeking to revise uh, the Belgic Confession, and they were seeking to try to 
you know, make room within the Heidelberg Catechism for their distinct views. And of course, the Synod of Dort met in 1618 and 19, and uh, not only reaffirmed the historic, uh, you know, belief as to what these documents had said all along, but also I think pretty soundly closed the door to Arminius's efforts uh, to, to modify the confessional tradition at that point. John, so let's talk a, about a few of those doctrinal distinctives, because there are areas where we read him. I, I read him on doctrine of God, theology proper, and he, he kind of he says it right. You know, I, I look at it like, wow, there's simplicity and impassibility and all the kind of Westminster Confession chapter two stuff is there. It really is in his doctrine of grace in particular, where his divergences stand out, and it, maybe not only would we say it doesn't sync up with the Belgic or the Heidelberg Catechism, but maybe even Augustine uh, in his understanding of grace. So maybe you could speak to that uh, in particular. What is his understanding of grace? And kind of cut it to the bone here. Where exactly uh, is that divergence uh, lying? Yeah, of course, we would say it's it's anachronistic to refer to the tulip, and you know the tulip didn't start off as a, as an acronym until the 19th century. But if we were to, to to use some of those categories, we would say that unconditional election—the idea that the scriptures teach that God, you know, is particular in His uh, the dispensation of His grace, and that He chooses certain individuals. Uh, and of course, this goes back to Augustine, you find it repeated in somebody like Aquinas and, and others, and then of course, in the 16th century with the Protestant reformers. Uh, but Arminius, on the other hand, uh, first of all, he says that no, grace isn't particular, uh, but rather the first idea, and he picks this up arguably from medievals such as Gabriel Biel, basically a, a Pelagian, uh, and it's the idea of the universal dispensation of grace, which you can call preventing grace, preventative grace, this idea that in order to overcome the effects of the fall, God through his providence dispenses grace that resets the, the, the game, so to speak, for everybody and gives them the opportunity to accept or to reject the salvation that comes in Christ. But then the second wrinkle that uh, Arminius introduces, and this he picks up from 16th uh, century Roman Catholic theologians, it's the idea of middle knowledge. You have the knowledge that God has by virtue of who he is as God, so his by what, by what he possesses as his by nature, so his necessary knowledge, then he has his voluntary knowledge or his knowledge of vision, which is his exhaustive knowledge of what he decrees based upon his will. Well, Arminius claims that nestled in between these two uh, is his middle, middle, middle knowledge, yeah. People talk about middle knowledge, but they often don't know what it lies in between. <laughs> uh, right. And so there's this middle knowledge. And the way that I describe it is it's a, it's a catalog of future human decisions in various circumstances so that if God knows that on Monday I'm going to be grouchy because I stepped on a Lego in the middle of the night, didn't get a good night's rest. John, that's never happened to you. <laughs> that's right. Never, ever. <laughs> uh, it's not personal testimony at all. Um, you know, and if he knows that I'm grouchy, then he knows that if he approaches me with the gospel on Monday, mor Monday morning, because I was grouchy, I'm going to say no. 
But on the other hand, if he approaches me on Tuesday because he knows that I've had a good night's rest and um, I, you know, I, I, I got a, a bonus check in the mail for something and that I'm in a good mood. Oh, then he knows that I'm going to I'm going to choose him. So he takes this catalog and says, OK, in the effort to pre preserve human freedom, I'll approach people based upon uh, how they're going to respond positively or negatively. But the problem, as Arminius's uh, contemporaries later showed, and as the Synod of Dort later rejected, and there's one theologian that I quote in the book by the name of Heisbert Futius. Some people pronounce him Fucius, uh, but um, Futius says, that's not predestination, that's post-destination. That's God looking in upon our decisions and then deciding, oh, okay, I'll go along with that. And the other problem is nothing can exist apart from God decreeing it. So how does something exist apart from God decreeing it? And so this is why they said middle knowledge is highly problematic. And so I think what a lot of people popularize Arminius's view of is just foreknowledge. And in the broadest of senses, that's true. But when you get down into the particulars, uh, I think that it's, you know, the, 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 his contemporaries found it exegetically, theologically, and philosophically uh, problematic. And so they, 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 they rejected it. And so that's, that's where he is, at least in terms of predestination. That's interesting because there are those that will that want to present middle knowledge as a kind of a ameliorating halfway house between Arminianism and Calvinism. And it's a way to kind of reconcile the two. But you're saying that was always one of the divisions between the two. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And when you read, you can find this in English translation in Heinrich Heppe's Reformed Dogmatics, where it's the chapter on predestination, where uh, Heppe has a huge excerpt from Futius, particularly on this question. Uh, so that, and uh, if memory serves me correctly, Futius was at Dort. And uh, so he was very much aware of all of the issues. And he, you know, he goes into theological and exegetical detail uh, because, you know, as it says in Ephesians 1, that we're predestined according to the good pleasure of God, not according to our, you know, decisions. Uh, or John 1.12, that we are, you know, given the right to become children of God, not by, you know, the will, not by human decision, not nor by flesh or blood, but by God. Uh, so this is this is one of the big pieces of the puzzle, obviously. I wanted to expand a little bit on that. So that that's a that's a significant distinction what about with respect to union with Christ? That's one of the the chapters in your book, one of the areas that you deal with in terms of uh, showing the and, you know, the, the, the distinction between Arminius and the Reformed tradition. Could you expand briefly on, on how you'd want to articulate that distinction? Sure. You know, one of the things that you can read is when you look at his disputations, he has, if you will, all of the pieces of the puzzle, all of the pieces of the doctrine of union with Christ. So he'll talk in very, uh, dare I even say, Calvinian terms, in terms of, mm -hmm. you know, union with Christ, uh, the twofold blessing of justification and sanctification. And so if you weren't reading 
slowly or carefully, you might say, okay, this sounds, this sounds pretty standard. It sounds mundane and garden variety. But then when you look at some of the particulars and you get into the details, you realize, wait a minute, he's putting these pieces of the puzzle together very differently uh, than his reformed peers. And I try to show that uh, by citing a number of you know, peers, whether it's, it's Perkins or whether it's Ames uh, or whether it's Trocadius. Uh, or some of these other, you know, contemporaries of his to show that, you know, for example, when he talks about justification, which you can look at all of the, the confessions of the period and his peers, they talk about justification as, to borrow the language of the Westminster Confession, it's later, but as an act. Uh, and it's distinguished from the, the work or the process of sanctification. Well, Arminius says, well, justification isn't completed until the final judgment. And basically it's because in Arminius's understanding, you might not actually be justified in the end. You may not make it. Um, and I, I remember I was talking with somebody about this just, uh, just two days ago uh, and uh, mentioning this, that Arminius has this line that he said that had David, King David, died shortly after committing sin, his sin with Bathsheba, he would have gone to hell. Uh, you know, so that right there is a very, you know, eye-opening uh, statement into Arminius's soteriology that goes to show how very different it is from a standard Reformed confessional soteriology. And of course, all of us would say um, David's sin was wrong. He needed to repent of it. Uh, and uh, the grace of God, as Paul says in Romans 6, is never supposed to be licensed to sin. But on the other hand, we should ask that question, can any one of our sins overturn uh, the grace of God to the extent that we end up losing our salvation? Rome would say yes. Arminius would say yes. Uh, and so uh, that, that, that's, that's where his doctrine of union with Christ and justification is, is quite different. Did, did he make statements like that? specifically with reflect or with respect to union with Christ, or is it just the way that that interfaces with the doctrine of justification where you see the difference? Yeah, it's particularly where it interfaces with justification. Cause I think if you just read him standing back, looking at union with Christ, you'd think, okay, I don't really see anything yeah, uh, yeah. all that, all that different. And so this would be at least to a certain degree, the extent to which there are some continuities between Arminius and the Reformed tradition. I don't right. want to say that there are no continuities. There are some, uh, but uh, I, I don't know. I guess I like to put it this way. The devil's in the details. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. it's not in the big picture. It's not, Hey, look, there's a forest. No, wait a minute. Let's see what kind of trees are in that forest before we get excited about the forest. So maybe on the point you just raised, even with regard to perseverance, um, would that would that would alter his understanding of perseverance from the reform view, where it's grounded on the on the preserving work of God in you? Uh, whereas in his view, it's something like a human faithfulness. So is that would that be more? That's right. Yes. One of the things that you see in the Reformed tradition, whether it's in Westminster or Dort, as they they put th forward three ideas. It rests upon the immutability of the decree. It rests upon the all-sufficient work of Christ. And then it rests upon the seal or the guarantee of the indwelling presence of the spirit. 
So it, you see how Trinitarian it is, and it rests upon, uh, rests upon God. Uh, whereas Arminius would say, long story short, no, it, it rests upon your, you know, your fidelity. Uh, it rests upon uh, your efforts. And this was, this was a considerable uh, issue later on in, um, you know, in, in, the, in the debates, because within the earlier tradition, say, for example, in, uh, let's say, the time frame of, this, of the uh, Heidelberg Catechism, the doctrine of perseverance wasn't really a specific issue. Uh, and so it doesn't get a whole lot of specific attention. And so Arminius was trying to, uh, I think, uh, maximize his own understanding of things and kind of force that shoehorn that into a leading of the, uh, of the Heidelberg Catechism. But when you read, for example, what Zacharias or Sinus says in his lectures on the Heidelberg Catechism, he leaves no doubt. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's no room there. But that's one of the issues I think that he was trying to exploit to try to make some, dare I say, some doctrinal elbow room uh, for his own views, because I think he recognized, he knew, he knew he was out of step uh, with, his, uh, with his colleagues and with the confessional tradition there at that time. He's not there at the Synod of Dort, obviously. He's, he's off the scene at that point. Um, does Arminius, so far as you're able to discern it in reading him, does he, does he see the Reformed tradition as itself something that is developing? And does he conceive his own work as a development within the Reformed tradition? Or is there, does he in any way indicate that he sees himself as sort of stepping out of that tradition entirely? Is it, can you discern that in yeah. his writing? I mean, in this is going to perhaps come across the wrong way, uh, but this is my read of it. I don't know how else to describe it. I think he knew what he was doing. I think he often played coy or played dumb at times saying, well, I don't think I'm doing anything wrong. And I don't think that this has ever been defined. When you read the auction catalog of his library, and granted, there are books that you buy and never read, and books that you read that you never buy. Uh, so I can't, we can't say, you know, we've read every single book in our library. Uh, but given the books that were in his library, he had easy access to everything and anything he could ever want to know about what the Reformed tradition was about, whether it was contemporaries, whether it was, you know, patristics, medievals. And so I think that in, he was, he, he was going to try to expand it. I think he was trying to, to get it to evolve, uh, if, if anything, to make room uh, for what would later develop into the Arminian party. Um, and, uh, but of course he dies, uh, about 10 years before the Senate actually deals with these issues in 16, 18, 19. And, um, and then what eventuated after that, of course, was a distinct and separate Arminian tradition with the Arminian confession of 1621 written by Simon Episcopius. And so, um, yeah, I, I think he, he was trying to evolve it, uh, but he was playing coy at times. Uh, especially when he was called before uh, the state's general. And oftentimes he would express very clearly, say in his letters to others, 
he knew he was, you know, diverging. This is a commonly accepted position, and I document that in the book, but I want to go in this direction. Say, for example, with his understanding of the doctrine of faith, uh, he, he knew that his, his contemporaries saw faith as an instrument, uh, whereas he sees it as foundational. Uh, the, for the, his contemporaries, faith lays hold of the righteousness of Christ, whereas Arminius says, no, it's because of the righteousness of Christ that God treats my faith as if it were itself righteousness. So there's a sense in which it's justification on faith, not justification by faith. And he was very aware, very aware uh, as to what he was doing there. And, uh, and he insisted on it. So I, he knew what he was doing. John, thanks for giving us your time today. And thank you for laboring in these sources uh, and, and producing this uh, really, really useful and interesting uh, volume for us. Th thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me. And uh, you guys take care and uh, blessings upon you and yours. James, as we often will, will say in these conversations, uh, some of these books are for everyone. And some of these books are a little more narrowly focused. This is more narrowly focused. Uh, it is a work of historical theology. It is a kind of fine-tuned reading of sources that are a little bit obscure. But I would say that there are um, there are some broad lessons that that came out even in our conversation about the uh, the significance of some of these. What, what might appear to be minor word choices or, or uh, you know, sort of the, these little theological details there, they're highly, highly significant. And Arminius knew that, as did the other uh, Reformed theologians with whom he was interacting. And I think it just goes to the point that this is not a place where we can sue for a truce. Uh, on the doctrine of grace, but that the kind of, I think most broadly reformed people are aware that whatever we are, it's not Arminian, but I think it's helpful what John has done to really get into some of the texture and detail about wherein precisely lie those differences. And the, and you and I have both seen it just in our own historical work, the desire to kind of, um, to kind of slow walk Arminius back into the Reformed yes. tradition as if he's just a variation on a theme. Uh, and I think John's point is uh, there are areas where if you isolate, if you kind of isolate areas like doctrine of God or incarnation, you're going to find him to be orthodox. And that's not what John is going after. But on the areas on the, of relevant concern, particularly with regard to grace and salvation um, and the details of that, the, the differences are irreconcilable. Uh, even even to this date, and that that distinction, that old debate between Calvinism and Arminianism, um, is one that is well founded. It's not it's not just um, bad will. Uh, it's it's really honest theological disagreement. And it's not just Calvinism versus Arminianism as it develops later. It's it's Arminius himself, and sometimes that's where yeah, that's people right. make this distinction between Arminius and Arminianism. And there is a distinction to be made there. But he himself was very consciously um, casting aside these uh, traditional categories in search of a new a new theology. Uh, Sidelining middle knowledge for a second, there's a lot in Arminius's doctrine of God that I like that agrees with the Westminster Confession. Uh, but I have to but I have to remind myself that I mean the difficulty I have is seeing how to reconcile uh, that kind of classical Orthodox doctrine of God broadly with the exception of the middle knowledge part. 
uh, with his doctrine of grace. And that's where that's where the tension is for me. Uh, I, I can't find a resolution for that tension. And anyway, it's it's helpful to have scholarly spade work like what John Fesco is doing to really to really help us see that those differences were well-held differences, not just people misunderstanding each other. Well, if you would like to uh, enter your name and information for an opportunity to win a copy of this book, it's published by our friends at Reformation Heritage Books. So we have one or two to give away. Uh, you can do that at placefortruth.org. Click on the Theology on the Go link. Uh, the, the title is Arminius in the Reformed Tradition, Grace and the Doctrine of Salvation uh, by John V. Fesco. Uh, also, if you're able to donate to Theology on the Go to continue uh, conversations such as this one and all the other things that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals does, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. If you know someone who might be helped by this, please pass along the podcast to them. Rate and review if you're able to do that as well. And as always, uh, thank you for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary. Biblically grounded, pastorally focused, and confessionally faithful.